This is Unseen Unknown. I'm Jasmine Bina. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about an interesting concept, and that is the concept of burnout. It has become a story, an idea that has captivated almost everybody that I speak with. In fact, one of the most widely read and widely circulated articles of 2019 was a BuzzFeed piece, which you may or may not have read, talking about how millennials have become the burnout generation. It has come to define who we are and how we see the world in many ways. It's also created a whole new league of wellness and D2C brands that are responding to the burnout that people are feeling. It's an important trend, and it's something that probably affects all of us as strategists and founders, and I wanted to dig into it more. There was one really important person that I needed to talk to in order to start this conversation, and his name is Emmett Shine. Emmett's name should ring a bell. He is the chief creative officer and co-founder of Pattern, which is a family of brands that includes equal parts and open spaces, amazing lifestyle brands. But before Pattern, Emmett was the co-founder of Gin Lane. Gin Lane was one of a few creative agencies in the U.S. that worked with the seminal brands that launched the D2C movement. Brands like Hims, Hers, Harry's, Sweetgreen, Recess, the list goes on and on. But he and his team were part of creating the storytelling and the aesthetic and the values and belief systems around the brands that really took over our lives. And his work is important because it surfaced the trends that have come to define what burnout means for us today. He's the person that is responsible for a lot of the stories that we're hearing in the marketplace. My conversation with him started with his own story. It was important to understand where Emmett comes from, to really understand how he was able to create what he's created and where he thinks the future of the space is going. I think I'm always just kind of exploring and looking for more white space and where stuff is less defined. If you go back about half a decade or a little bit longer in New York City, this emerging class of entrepreneurs that were thinking digital first around consumer commerce to start, then consumer packaged goods, and then, you know now it's gone into healthcare and insurance and everything. It was it felt really new and really exciting, and I, I think I was really happy to be a part of what felt like a, a novel chapter in I don't know American business history. Being someone, I'm not really. A business person. I like where I feel like creativity was really valued and design was really valued and user experience and design thinking became seen as something really valuable. So it's cool to kind of be a part of that. And I think for our Jin Lane, we kind of really dialed into that pretty deep over the next five to seven years. And I don't know, I think some of us just kind of felt like Either we were going to just kind of burn out doing the same thing over and over to some extent, or if we wanted to stay within this world that we really loved and do more challenging work, we, which we tried a few times, that also ran the risks of getting us out of, uh, out of our comfort zone, how we could kind of balance our work and our personal lives. And so I just think pattern felt like a it's something that we thought on for years. It didn't just happen overnight. We just kind of always were thinking what could be this next chapter where we could take what we're good at and stay together as a team, bring on some people that had been around us that we admired, but what could we do that was different? That would be the next kind of white space without having to completely reinvent ourselves in our adult careers. And so I think just thinking, could we make our own brands and our own businesses 
but do them in like a unified way around a topic that felt important to us, which was when we did go through those more stressful or trying times, it didn't really seem like there was a brand or a business or a signal in the market that was talking on this information. This is a few years ago. This is before Anne Helen Peterson wrote her her article on burnout. This is before Gia Tolentino's book or How to Do Nothing, Jenny O'Dell. Uh, I feel like a lot of this stuff has been pretty cool zeitgeist the last like 18 months, which is awesome. And I, I think our for any of those people, they were probably thinking about it on their own 24 months ago, just like we were 24 months ago thinking about this on our own. And it all kind of came out around 2019. So I think a lot of people in America were feeling millennials, especially this the same way that we've been working really hard in high school and college, and then you get out and it's a great recession or post-great recession, and it's hard to get a normal job and rents high and you have student loan debt and you're trying to get a good job, but so is everyone else. And it just feels a little bit like the rat race all over again, even if you are working in quote unquote, the creative sector or information knowledge economy. And I don't know, it just didn't feel like there was like a lot of places you could go online or off where people were talking on this information in a first person relatable way. So we kind of thought, hey, here's an interesting convergence. Can we try to do something again, white space and open, which is like try to build a new 21st century family of brands or a house of brands that are all related and working together versus just being like an agency and pumping stuff out over and over. Let's stay with these brands a little bit longer. And can we marry it with with the subject matter and topic that is personal to us and doesn't really feel like there's something in the market as much talking around it? I want to go back to what you were saying before about how you were starting to kind of like feel this before it became part of the zeitgeist. Like you started to feel, you say 24 months, but I, I also heard you said it was even longer before that, that you yeah. were starting to see that the tide was changing. What's interesting is if you look back like four or five years ago, which is probably, I'm guessing when you guys were starting to really understand and feel this in the subtext culturally, people weren't talking about it. We were still kind of idolizing what I think was probably born in Silicon Valley, this idea of like overwork, wearing your exhaustion, like a badge of honor, the way we were kind of yeah. romanticizing the whole startup life. And it was bleeding into all other sectors, right? Like a lot of cultural stuff is seeping into the rest yeah. of the country through Silicon Valley. And what I want to know is, because I know how we do it in our agency, but I want to hear how you do it in your agency. How do you pick up the signals that people can't see yet? Because there wasn't really a retaliation yet. I think the the loudest thing I was hearing at the time was Ariana Huffington of the Huffington Post started her whole sleep movement. But even yeah. then, I think people thought it was kind of hokey, right? It wasn't even, I, I don't think, I wasn't taking it seriously in the beginning. It also felt like executive performance based or something. Right. It was, it was a business. It was hard to see the authentic conversation behind it. But how do you guys pick up on these signals before we even know they're there? Yeah, I think I'm a voracious consumer of information. I think for myself, like, would I say like working in like the knowledge sector, the information sector, working in technology, whatever, like my dad's a landscaper. Like I grew up landscaping for him. A lot of my friends back home, they do the awesome jobs you do when you live in a small town. And so I think that the blessing in this curse or whatever, when I'm like, yeah, I moved to the big city and I work with computers and do all that stuff is that it can really offer you so much. You can connect with people all over the world. You can maybe earn more money. You can 
create stuff that hasn't been created before. The downside is that like it moves really fast and you can you can get really caught up on something and then the market moves right by you because you got caught up on the wrong thing. So for every great success story of someone doubling down on something ahead of everyone else, there's a lot of people who have doubled down on the wrong thing. It's like everyone trying to race to the GPS location and you ways go off the main road and think this this back road is going to get you there, but then there's a tree down and you got to go all the way back. And so I think for the way that I've always tried doing this for, I don't know, since the early mid 2000s is to just try to read a lot of information and look for people who I trust their specificity within a certain area and and listen to what they're seeing and what they're saying, and then try to pull out and look at other people that have nothing to do with that individual and what are they seeing or thinking in a totally different part of culture or business. And then I also try to just keep some good people around me that usually they, they don't agree with most of the stuff I think or my hypotheses, but I like that because they're very like constructively critical in terms of thinking about culture. Um, I'm always just trying to keep my like gate open for ideas and information. And then it's just always like, I love in for equal parts, our first brand, the cooking brand. Again, I, I guess it's kind of synesthesia-esque is the scene in Ratatouille where Remy is eating the or showing his, uh, his fellow rat when you combine like strawberries and cheese, how like explosive that, that taste is, how much stronger it is than if you just had a strawberry alone or a piece of cheese alone. And I feel like that's like ideas. It's like a good idea is, is cool on its own, but a great idea is when you have like two converging thoughts or inspirations from different places. That's where I think it's, it's really fun. I'm really excited that you said that. I, I feel that a lot of the biggest value that's being created in brands today is things that are happening at the edges of spaces between spaces. And it kind of relates to your work. I think people have labeled pattern as kind of like this response to burnout, right? So like burnout brands. But before that, it was wellness. And wellness is interesting because it's like wellness isn't a space anymore. It's this layer that's kind of being applied to every vertical, you know, wellness, obviously in beauty, wellness in, in self-care. I see wellness now in all kinds of service sectors. I yeah. see wellness even in real estate, wellness in obviously medicine, stuff like that. But what's also interesting about you is when you were leading Gin Lane, you guys were working with a lot of brands that were starting, I think maybe even before we were using that word so much, they were playing in the wellness space. So Hims and Hers, two of my favorite case studies ever, Sweet Green. Harry's recess, certainly. And how do you like, I wanted to get your take on the wellness space because it kind of blew up synonymously with D2C. Why has this idea captivated our generation? And more than that, a follow on question is how is it different for this generation? Um, and by this, I mean millennials versus baby boomers versus Gen Z. I mean, I think this is like the the crux of it all. Like, I guess let's go specific and then I'll kind of zoom out. I think a lot of the recent trends in the market or brands or whatever, it's been like micro wellness. And I think what is kind of cool to see emerging and I would kind of categorize pattern in that camp is like macro wellness, right? So it's like even some of the wellness stuff, it's like 
beauty or healthcare or self or self-care or yoga or whatever. They're just all these like subsects. When you think of wellness, it's like coming out of like the late nineties, early two thousands, like health and wellness stores. They have like vitamins and smoothies and like topical creams. And then there's like the studios that come out of it for like yoga and meditation, et cetera. I think what like we're focused on is what is wellness at like a, a homeostasis or like a, a holism level? Like how do you feel well? <laughs> you know, not just like you don't need medicine or something because you feel bad. It's like existentially when you're bumping your head against the ceiling of what you're capable of thinking on, how, how do you want to get out of bed and deal with money and family and stress and pain and, and feel like it's worth it. It's not like something you just kind of have to do. It's actually like you feel present, you feel enjoyment. Our pattern's mission is enjoy daily life, right? It's like, how do we help people embrace the nuances and the, the grooves of daily life, you know, getting up in the morning, going to work or doing work, dealing with significant others or children or family, the responsibilities of being an adult and also existing in a society that like, there's so much information now that I think it's really hard. I don't think our brains have evolved to deal with the amount of information we have. And I think we have societally structures that also don't know how to deal with this much information. And I think technology is just continuing to increase faster and faster. So then stepping back a little bit, why I think this is, I'll take one step back and then we'll take a few more back. I think you see it associatively with like the direct to consumer cohort because direct to consumer, which really to me is just businesses that are digital first. That's the language of consumer culture of our generation. That's how our generation has basically grown up as let's say like purchasing adults as our native kind of model for communication. It's been social platforms and then websites, right? And it's just a byproduct of our generation's default way of doing business. And so if you look at our generation and you go back, you go maybe to the 70s where you can start seeing some of the laws and regulations and stuff changing around businesses, around capitalism, and you have wages that have been more or less what you account for inflation stagnant since like 1974. I think the actual word burnout first comes into like popular culture in 1974. There's a lot of correlations between that. And you look at how we've been basically people who were born in the 80s into the 90s, when you have globalization really starting to take effect, when automation is stuff that you can hear Andrew Yang talking about now, and it sounds crazy, but it's been stuff that ha happened in America in the, the, the Rust Belt or the big industrial cities in the 70s. I think we've been generationally trained to work so hard. And I think what I felt when I turned 30, which is just over five years ago, was what's the point? Why are we running so fast and working so hard when it feels like the winners, if this is like a game of life, they're not winning. They're stressed out and they're not happy. So I just feel like the matrix, the game, the game is off a little bit. And so if I'm getting super heady, I don't, I don't think like selling cookware and home organizational goods is the silver bullet. I'm not delusional. It's just, we know how to market stuff and brands. And I just wanted to keep kind of doing what we're good at about stuff that I felt 
myself and our team needed. We wanted to spend more time in our homes. We wanted to spend less time with clutter, more time doing mundane activities that we could just lose ourselves and not be stressed about work or the world around us and find little flow state moments. And I think if you go back to the last few years of Jin Lang, we were searching for those type of brands. So it's working with therapist businesses like Alma or working with brands like Recess that are an antidote for modern times or dealing with hims and hers or working with Make-A-Wish, just trying to explore and figure out a little bit like where does the market need to go for our generation who are seeking and searching for more than I think people were maybe looking for in the 90s or early 2000s. I think it was just a different time. Okay. So this is, there's so much to unpack here. What you're describing is brands that carry a lot more emotion, or I guess you would say emotional triggers. And I think where patterns brands play and the companies that you've created um, for your clients, a lot of this is about using emotional triggers in a premium space to get people to not just buy the product, but also the story and the ethos behind it. And wellness, self-care, all these, all these concepts, they command a premium, right? It's not just about getting the product. Either you pay a premium in price or you pay a premium in education or the time it takes to use the product. What you guys are talking about with equal parts and open spaces, like slowing down, taking your time, which can be luxuries for, for some people. And I, I don't want to paraphrase too much what you're saying. What I want to get at is my next question, which is how are people purchasing differently? Like, you're talking about a lot of like emotional purchase decisions. How do you see people behaving and buying differently in these spaces that you're operating in? Yeah, I think there's um, a few trends or answers. I think post 2008, the cohort of like what is dictating consumer culture in America is continuing to shift to be more millennials. And it's also fast approaching that like Gen Z are an emerging block of Americans. And I think the sensibilities are for both of them, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk on what I think is a difference. I think millennials, they feel burned by the government, by businesses. And I think people want more insights into businesses and leadership. They want transparency. They want responsibility. They want to hear about how, you know, what it's made of. Is there the charitable component or the responsibility of the materials or just a brand that like talk, looks like them. I think there are more businesses that are more diverse in terms of how they're marketed, who their leadership is, the values they have than ever before. And I, th I think there should be, I think it should, businesses should be more a reflection of society and America is a very diverse society. And so I think Millennials are more wanting to trust businesses and have an affinity for businesses, and they will support those businesses by voting with their wallet. When you say people, people are looking for brands and businesses and leaders that look like them, is this kind of like in contrast to more aspirational brands that are creating an image of what we should look like? I mean, could, you, could we oppose these two or is this like a counter trend? Yeah, I mean, I think a few things, right? Like, let's go back to like the 90s and early 2000s. This is before like quote unquote, influencer culture. And so basically, how do you market a brand? You get celebrities or you do like zany marketing or you like talk about crazy, you know, like Nike is interesting. Like they would have crazy product details. It's like the new Air Max 3000 with this cushion that does this thing. And then they would also have a famous athlete 
And then they also would do like a crazy marketing stunt. Those things don't not work, but that was the default of the day. Then when you move forward into like social media, which more democratized people having voices and a pedestal kind of to speak from, you get into a little bit of what I think you're you're talking on, which is this aspirational culture, which is it's actually like aspirationally attainable. So like a celebrity is pure aspiration. An influencer is like, hey, look, I'm just like you, but it's still kind of aspirational. That's a new trend. That's only like 10 years old. It's just if you're growing up in it, 10 years is a long time to be inundated when everyone else starts to follow that format. I think what's emerging now amongst other things that bifuscate continuously as this stuff works is people wanting even more authenticity. And they think they can just sniff test, know when something is formulaic, when it's someone that a business is just hiring a bunch of influencers, paying them money. The influencers don't really care about the product. They just know that they can get money for it and convince people to buy it. I think people are smarter than they think. I think politicians sometimes think people are stupid. I think businesses sometimes think people are stupid. And I think brands that are doing well and emerging of the past few years, they are authentic and they have a mission. They Their promise sounds like they really mean it. And people feel and can sense that. Whether you like Donald Trump or not, I think he capitalized on being someone who is very different than the politicians. I think on the left, you have... Bernie Sanders doing something similar. I think for businesses, whether it's Warby Parker or The Wing or Glossier or Everlane or Fenty or Savage from Rihanna, th- these are just modern, different businesses that feel like they were made by people that share the similar values from a similar time than you know a, a Procter and Gamble or a Unilever or big faceless businesses from the 20th century. Right, right. And then going back to how people purchase differently. So obviously what you're describing is people have, they're more sophisticated, it seems like they they have a gut reaction to what it is they feel aligns with their values and what they purchase. Is there anything else you're seeing in the way people are behaving and purchasing in this new context around how we operate in the world, the way that you've described it? Yeah, I I was going to say on like Gen Z and younger people, I feel like that's even more flat. And I feel like that is actually even more weirdly like relatable where if you look at the emerging platforms of like TikTok, it just feels like it's, uh, there are brands working on TikTok and stuff. And it's just, I guess the next class of kind of like how people use voices and channels and platforms to communicate, you know, within market. But there, I think there's also something that feels more decentralized and more, I don't know, even another click into like authentic of some of the the services and brands that are doing a good job of communicating on that. And I I would say also like in e-com, if there's people listening of that, it's like now stuff has like coalesced around like the Shopify ecosystem, the cottage industry. And I think what's kind of cool is looking at like where people are selling stuff through Instagram or they're selling stuff through different applications and they're more decentralizing or they're using some of the no code kind of stacks that are popping up. So I think the playbook of having this like fancy website that's integrated with Shopify and running paid campaigns with influencers on social channels and doing some out of home, it still makes sense and stuff, but we're going through the new start of, uh, of another cycle, which I think is going to be a bit leaner, a bit faster and a bit more decentralized. I don't know if you'll even really need a website to run a business off of in, in a few years. I think the younger generation in America 
Whereas maybe millennials, we're still like laptop based in a lot of ways. We browse stuff on our phones, but then you go home and you go into Amazon or your social channels or, or your favorite sites, like when you bookmark it or whatever, and you pull it up on your laptop and you like open quote unquote different tabs and comparatively shop. I think that the younger generation is just way more mobile native. And I think you're going to start seeing, like, look at SMS as like an emerging channel, right? Like it's like, Think about the open rates of like texting versus an email and think about the continuing rich media or integrations with like SMS, MMS. And you think about, again, in Asia, like you have like these platforms that are for chatting and communication, but also commerce. And so you kind of don't need traditional standalone kind of websites, just like a prior generation you did, you would have obfuscated traditional standalone retail stores, right? So I think things are just becoming more decentralized, more lean more about communication in an asynchronous way versus like old school was broadcast and then it was like direct digital broadcast. And I feel like it's more mobile now and like just conversational, which I think is cool. Yeah. Okay. So I'm kind of like, while you're describing this, thinking of like how, I mean, am I seeing this in any of Patterns brands? <laughs> you know, you have a lot of great insights and I love that you like have an opinion on where things are going. And I, I know people listening are going to want to hear a bit more either about equal parts or open spaces, because I know you guys are super thoughtful in the way you create brands. There's so much that goes probably unsaid that is behind the way you guys design the brands that you create. I would love it if you could take either of the brands right now and maybe describe some of the deeper thinking and decisions behind them that maybe as consumers, we just don't see, like decode the brand for us a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I'll give a shout out to like our, you know, Ed and Lane who headed up our brand department and has helped architect for pattern, um, our brands, Camille Baldwin. And so she loves like pyramids and triangles and like bases that ladder up to stuff. And I think for, for pattern, our mission is like enjoy daily life. And then for equal parts, it's, you know, uh, enjoy home cooking. And for open spaces, it's create space to enjoy. And so the common theme is enjoyment for our family brand, as well as the, the sub brands. And then they're all centered around essentially domestic activities within, within the home. And so we were really thoughtful in terms of how we set a pattern. At first, when we were stressed out by work, we didn't just try to go tackle, I don't know, like anti-productivity apps or services within the workplace. We thought of like, why don't we just rethink home and rethink it as a, a little bit of a sanctuary where you can put your phone down. Equal Parts was like our first kind of beachhead brand because, well, for a few reasons, I think home cooking was a remedy that a lot of our team were using to deal with the stress of work when it got intense, they would come home and kind of get lost and not think about email or Slack or some Asana board or whatever it is while they're focusing on, you know, the heat and simmering and, and putting stuff in the pot, putting some music on, pouring a, a glass of wine or some, you know, whatever, nice ginger ale. And we also saw it as a nice beachhead into the home. And Tying back to the earlier conversation, we have this notion where you, we have like a hotline. We have like you can text professional uh, coaches who we have um, on staff. And we saw that 
and and cooking as a great beachhead into the home to better understand our audience. We did consumer interviews and research, but we wanted we we ran a half year beta of just trying to understand the behaviors of potential customers in America in their late twenties, early to mid thirties, whatever. When were they cooking? We found out that people were doing a lot of meal preparation and meal planning on weekends and that they would then cook based on that stuff Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but no one was really cooking on Thursdays and Fridays and sometimes Saturdays. And so we understood the rhythm and flow of our audience through SMS. And that also helped inform then how open spaces came in, which is more of like a a multi-zone brand, right? So equal parts is focused on helping people rethink their relationship in the kitchen and the dining room. And open spaces is really for every room in your apartment. And we wanted to have a little bit more information on the behaviors of our customer, which the texting service allowed us to just talk to hundreds, if not thousands of customers before we we rolled out open spaces to get a better picture of what their days were looking like and where there were pain points. So we, we're always testing, we're always, we're building websites with fake brands and running ads. We're always doing focus groups and consumer interviews. And it's not like that dictates what to do. We're just trying to get as much information as possible and then just try to push where we think the, the space of the industry is in an adjacent way. It's never, we're never trying to be like revolutionary. We're always just trying to evolve things to feel a little bit new and different, but they're not so far away that they're kind of like hard to grasp or see or make that cognitive leap. We're very fortunate enough that we can try to do something we're passionate about. And I just hope for entrepreneurs today or, or coming up that are younger or people within the organizations that those entrepreneurs will build, you know, that people feel more confident to be vulnerable and more confident to talk around topics for business that maybe are harder to do or say. I'm just trying to break, I think, a lot of the what became the normal culture out of Silicon Valley, as you said. Like we did an interview for Open Spaces, our brand that just launched, you know, and it's doing, it's awesome. I'm excited and Equal Parts is doing great. But in the interview, I, I said, we went too creative with Equal Parts, right? Like I don't think we as disciplined as we were when we were doing gin lane projects because we wanted to kind of be undisciplined and i think pattern has like wacky watercolors and it's all painted and the website loads in and you can't click anything for 10 seconds like it just breaks every like best practice and it worked really well and i think we tried that for equal parts and some of it didn't work it was hard to see the products you know i think some of the brand storytelling was just all in the way of the actual product details the websites were full of crazy progressive graphic animations and we had to really listen to market and and pull back and fix a lot of stuff but i think being honest about that is important we're we're still in market we're still learning but I'm not going to lie and just say like we, we had everything figured out. And hopefully that makes it easier for other people to talk about the challenges of trying to run a business or working in a business. Not saying that our business is also run perfect. Like I think sometimes people do work late and do get burnt out. And we're trying to be better about primary and secondary caregiver time off. And so we're trying to push that. So I don't know. I think it's just talking about stuff as you're working through things is healthy. It's like what therapy is all about. And I just feel like in business culture, you just have to be all 20th century alpha. I have it all figured out. And part of my French is just bullshit and it's not healthy. Listening to Emmett makes you realize that there are two stories happening around burnout. 
There's a surface level story around the burnout that we feel as consumers and as individuals and how that affects our purchasing behaviors, how we move throughout the world, how we relate to brands and the kinds of solutions that brands are trying to create for us, either through their products or through their storytelling. But there is a different narrative around burnout that is a bit more internal than burnout that we feel in our interpersonal relationships, the burnout that we feel and the lack of satisfaction that we have. The burnout that's harder to articulate and harder to name, and something that I thought was worth exploring. I spoke with Abby Crom, who's a licensed therapist, who has explored the subject of burnout extensively, not just with millennials, but Gen Z people in her practice as well. And she's explored the idea of the burden of potential, which is one of the precursors or causes of burnout. It's an interesting concept that maybe can start to explain where the lion's share of our burnout is coming from and how we can deal with it. So the burnout potential is essentially the pressure we feel around potential. And so you can kind of think of it as if you think of the phrase, a waste of potential, like we have a fear of that, right? And so the burden of potential is that pressure to manifest or kind of reach the height of your potential. And we just get so many messages in this culture that you need to be almost like started at you know, age zero with that, that it kind of becomes this kind of shackle on you from a really early age. So it starts to feel like a burden. Right. So how did you like come across this in your own work? Like what was the genesis of this thing? Because I think we all feel it. Mm -hmm. I just don't know that we've ever named it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny. So I spontaneously said it, but then I looked it up and I wasn't the first one to say it. But I was actually working with a high school student who was kind of the hope for her community because she was really smart and she had talent. And so everyone in her community would kind of say, you have so much potential. And she was just like, I don't want to hear that one more time. And I said, oh, it feels like it's a burden. And she was like, exactly, because she knew not only was did she have the potential, but it was being witnessed by other people. And once it's witnessed, then it's like, oh, I really have to act on this or people will really know that I haven't gotten to the height of my potential. And there's out of evolutionary uh, biological psychology, there's this thing about status that we're actually wired not to lose status. What will happen is, so they give this example, like let's say there's kind of a guy in Indiana and he's the smartest guy in his town. And then everyone's excited for him to take the SATs and see what college he gets into. So the night before the SATs, he'll get drunk and fail it because then he can say, well, it's because I got drunk. He never has to actually show that what if I can't actually get into Harvard or something like that. And so we do that because if you lost status or some kind of talent in the tribe, you would kind of get kicked out. And so that's just wired into us that if you ever hit a height, like let's say you're an Olympian, I imagine the day after the Olympics, if you can't qualify again, is really scary because it's like, how will I ever hit that height again? And so even hitting our potential can almost be depressing in a way because it's like, where do I go from here? That was my whole sense of worth. This is fascinating because I feel like you touch on a lot of things. One, I, f- I feel like I hear a little bit of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. in this, right? People feel like once they've reached a certain height, they have to keep proving that they are that person. So they feel a bit of imposter syndrome, which reminds me of Carol Dweck's work where she talks about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. I have a personal story here even. So my sister is a high school teacher. And when we were kids, I was in the gifted and talented mm-hmm. education program. You're familiar with that, right? Okay. Okay. 
So I was in Gates and I, yeah. I even had to like be bused to a different right. school from my school. And like there were only 10 of us and like it was like this little tribe. But my sister was telling me years later, like while I was in college, that now that they've had time to do long term studies on these kids, they see that these kids really feel a sense of imposter syndrome. They have a fixed mindset because Gate taught them that this is how good you are yeah. at an early age. And it didn't give them room I mean, to I fail. Had, mm-hmm. I still am deprogramming myself from having <laughs> such a tremendous fear of failure. And, in, you know, the burden of potential you're talking about, truly, there's no other word. It is a burden because it takes up so much mind space. You feel the heavy weight of having to prove that you are capable of what people see in you. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's super heavy. And we have systems in our culture, like yes. gate that actually, and now that things are so public, like now that you can peak in high school and everybody sees it <laughs> now that like you can be like an entrepreneur that has like a super early win and does tremendously and then fails the next time. Like, have you seen this a lot in your millennial patients? Like, have you seen this burden pop up over and over again? Uh, all the time. It's 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 constant because it, it is almost embedded in our culture that you are supposed to be. And it's from parents, you know, so parents feel this pressure to also manifest their kids potential. And so there's kind of this message. Like, I remember when I was a kid, if I like made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, my mom was like, you should do a cookbook. You know, like there was just like <laughs> yeah, the encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. Which was meant to be encouraging and helping me find my path. But like, and I do think paths are more meandering than we like to pretend they are. So if you're good at football at an early age, that path is just like set from like, it's just like, oh, you know what that's going to look like, the high school and the club sports and the all that, you know? And there's not like, mm, this year I don't want to do football. But parents are scared to do that. You know, mm-hmm. well, um, why don't you just stay in football and then we'll see how it goes when you're 40, you know? Like <laughs> they just can't because they're scared. And so there's all this stuff. Oh, millennials are so, you know, all this stuff people say about uh, millennials that they're entitled and lazy and all this stuff. It's it's not really that. It's that everyone's forced to find in what way they're special. And then we get to points like we can't all be special all the time. So you get into a workforce where when you're doing unspecial work, which is what we're required to do sometimes, you actually feel shame, you know? And so I think there's a way in which it does get avoided, but not because people are just lazy. I just don't even believe in laziness. I believe we are a product of the culture and like a reward and consequence system. And so there's very little reward for being the person to do unspecial work. So unspecial work is, is this is important for us to talk about here because it relates to burnout a little bit, which is, you know, the larger topic of this discussion. It seems that there's different definitions of burnout, but the definition that I've seen, which I think was on the Vlogbrothers, um, Hank was talking about this, is that when you are doing something and the treadmill keeps running, but the dopamine hit stops coming, Mm -hmm. meaning you've stopped doing something that's passionate for you. Mm -hmm. That's one way of interpreting it, right? And this pressure to constantly do what makes you feel passionate about it, I feel like it's caused us to kind of muddy the waters. Maybe we don't even know what we're passionate about because so much of that is signaling to the world like, I am doing this special work, like you said, but maybe the thing I'm passionate about is super mundane. Do you see that? Like, what are your thoughts on that? So what I think it's that, yeah, like 
what I kind of think is important is everything is going to include kind of menial days, mundane days, but you kind of have to be okay with that at least a little bit. Like if you don't like the practices in football, I I don't know why I keep using this metaphor, but if you don't like like practicing and all that other stuff in between, you only like making touchdowns, that is going to be a miserable life for you. The people who really, I think, do well and mentally well in these sports are people who kind of like practice, even when it sucks or they can still have a bad day, they can still kind of not love it all the time, but they kind of have an affinity for it. They don't mind the middle parts. So a lot of people get so pressured into picking something they think they're good at, or maybe you're talented at, but you hate every aspect of it except when you excel, then I think you get stuck in this cycle where you're just going to be unhappy most of the time unless you're winning, quote unquote, or like succeeding at whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Do you feel like a lot of our burnout as a culture now is coming from this disconnect that you're describing in the burden of potential? I think where it's coming from is more the treadmill. Like treadmill is a metaphor that just comes forward for me all the time, which is I'm not allowed to get off the treadmill. And if I do, something bad's going to happen. So even if somebody, I was just listening to somebody and they, they talked about this thing. Let's say your work says, hey, you can take mental health days whenever you want. Well, there's still going to be this thing where you feel like, I don't want to be the person that looks like they need that because I don't see anyone else doing it versus if you were required to have mental health days, then people would actually take them or they would be forced into taking them and get the benefits of them. Do you feel for some reason as a culture we're idolizing overwork? Yeah, absolutely. Like it really has become... Um, not to get too much into the religious and spiritual, but it has become the replacement, I think, for for that. And I'm not someone who's attached to a particular religion or that you need spirituality. But I do think we need something um, beyond our lives, you know, and right now that is work for so many people. But the belief system is like you give everything to this. You know what I mean? And that like that is how you're going to prove your worth. Like, especially when you hear the criticism about millennials, how could we not? They're everything's about them being lazy and entitled. And part of me wonders. So when someone sets a boundary with you, does that make them lazy? Because there have been times when I've had to set boundaries and the people of older generations hate it. They absolutely like because it's like, how come you get to do that? I didn't set boundaries. I was you say yes to everything. And I don't believe in that, you know, but that is part of like work culture, like just be a yes man. And I just don't buy into that. I do want to get into the religion is work thing. (laughs) Okay, sure. So let's assume, which I think for some people, this will feel very personal, but like, even though it sounds so cliche and we don't want to believe it, like we have many new religions, right? Um, work is one of them. And I've talked about this. It's because our other institutions are failing. Religion itself for a lot of people is failing. A lot of people are moving into, you know, out of religion and more into like a spiritual realm where they're kind of deciding what their connection to the universe or themselves is. The thing about religion, though, is that it has clear rules, clear boundaries, mm. and it delivers That's why it's so hard for atheist groups to create a substitute for religion, which they've tried. And we've worked actually, we've, we've done work with, with, um, atheist organizations. And it's, you know, when people leave religion, there's just this gaping hole where, yeah, we're all looking for meaning and it's hard to have that without religion. So when we look to work to give that to us, is there ever a context that you see where work could actually give us enough meaning to bring us happiness the way like a religious system might have? Absolutely. I do think that. And that's like when we talk about getting into flow states, when we talk about 
when your work and your joy merge, you know, and I do think, and it doesn't mean you're happy every day, you know, that happiness is not like an end point, right? But even in the work I do, like, I feel like I'm really close to that. And especially because I'm in private practice and I can work for myself, I do feel like I'm closer to that work is also a very fulfilling purpose for me. And so I do think it can be that. I think corporate culture and capitalism make it really difficult. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I don't want to get rid of work. I mean, I think there is something to work mm -hmm. um, that's really meaningful to people's lives. It's more the systems that are the organizers of work right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did you have an experience with the burden of potential? Uh, yeah. So for me, um, well, so it's interesting that I mentioned the story about my mom, you know? So like, I think from a young age, I did already have kind of, no one ever sat me down and said, you should make something of yourself. And I didn't have one of those high pressure. Like I was, I was almost like the opposite. Like if I got a C, like my parents were like, okay. But there was something of like, do something important. I don't know where that quite came from, but many people in my family did go on to do big, important things. So I think there's kind of growing up in the shadow of giants. So if you're somebody who your family member did something important, I think that adds to the burden. So then I moved out to LA and I was doing stand-up and improv. And I remember specifically telling my own therapist that I was like, I'm never really happy because if I have a great show and everyone loves me, I feel like anxiety, like how am I going to produce that again? And if I have a terrible show, obviously I don't feel great about that. And if it's neutral, then again, that's ordinary, that's average, that's not good enough. So just, I don't want to gloss over this. Uh, like you said it like it was nothing. You mm -hmm. moved to LA to do stand up and improv. <laughs> <laughs> that's huge. I don't meet too many people that do that. I mean, people move to LA to be actors, but yeah. stand up and improv, which sound like my personal nightmares. Uh, <laughs> you wanted to make a life out of this before you were even thinking of therapy. Like that's who you were. Yeah. Well, and I am more of a risk. Whenever I say that, and I'm always, I'm, I'm very fearful of risk and people look at me and go like, you did stand up, you know? So I totally get that. And I don't know exactly what came together to allow me to overcome my fears to do it. But um, yeah, it's kind of a thread in my family too. Like a lot of like funny, you know, we're Jewish. It's like very much like humor is how you kind of get status. And I was at a training and I have a mentor and I was just talking about myself and she uh, said something like, so in your family, applause was love. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh yeah, like that was it. That's how you got kind of status in my family was being the funniest one at the table. And so I think a lot of my journey into stand-up, um, and my mom did put me into my second grade talent show doing stand-up, wrote me a an act, which I don't know what it was about like the school chicken nuggets. Like I can't imagine what that <laughs> act was. But but I remember when they called my name to audition and I had my what my mom had prepared for me, they were like Abby, and I just sat there. I didn't like raise my hand. I just pretended there was no Abby there, you know? And so I think it just kind of started there where I needed to prove something. And the things I love about stand-up is you do get to talk about larger cultural issues. I do like to challenge things. I do have opinions. I like ultimately what stand-up is, and it provided a lot for me watching stand-up comedians when I felt 
on the outside, like in high school and things like that. The world of stand-up, though, is a little different, you know? And so, and I definitely felt that burden. And so I just realized I was never going to be happy in that world. So how did you come to therapy then? So I was in therapy and then I realized, and then also a good friend of mine was in graduate school and I kind of realized that's what I really, I was... I was at the time also volunteering at a hotline. So I was kind of already doing counseling. And so when she told me about her graduate school program, I just said, that's exactly what I want to do. And I remember saying to my therapist, though, I don't see how these are going to merge. Like, I, I have to kind of kill one to do the other. And she was like, you'll be surprised. Like, I'm sure they'll come together at some point. And I kind of like, OK. But the truth is, like, now I do workshops, I'm speaking, like, and this feels so much better, like just what I'm doing today with you, to be able to talk about meaningful things. And like my humor's in there, but not have to be like the funniest person in the world and make it onto, you know, a certain stage or something like that. Like I'm just allowing, if I have the opportunity to speak, I take it. And um, that's how I kind of use it now. So is what you just described, it sounds like that was your way of dealing with the burden of potential. Like you found... Something else that still gave you the same mm -hmm. outlets that you wanted, but it seemed like it was your openness that, that allowed you to kind of get out from under that burden. Like, what's the antidote to this burden that we all feel? Mm. I think it's like baby steps. Whenever I'm guiding like a client through this process, um, you don't have to do anything impulsively. Like if you're like, I really feel burned out of my job and it really isn't what I want to be doing. It's just starting to figure out and the thing is, like, it's really hard to ask, like, if I was to give your listeners some, like, generic questions to ask themselves. It sounds so generic. That's why I love being with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, because I can really dig into people's stuff. But I mean, to really think about, again, when we talk about flow state, what could you do all day, every day, and enjoy it? You know, what, what gets you into that place where you can kind of let go of the rest of the world? These are at least going to start to create baby steps into something, like, for me, it was that was graduate school. I was like, let me try this. And the more I did it, the more possibility showed up. Because if anyone had told me, like all you hear when you're in graduate school for psychology is there's too many therapists. It's saturated. You'll never make it in private practice. You're going to have to work in an agency. It's going to be miserable. So that's why so many people, again, have trouble getting off the treadmill because all you're going to hear is messages like, not a good idea. You have a good job. And so it's really overcoming the fear and like actually stepping into the unknown, seeing if you actually die off the edge, which rarely happens. And so that's why so many people need support to do it, because I think it's really hard to do on your own because you will get a lot of messages that it's not possible to do anything else but what you're doing. That's really good. I want to jump in here and say like, from a cultural perspective, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are founders and brand strategists. These things matter to us because they give us kind of a, a touchstone into what people are thinking, but more importantly, how they'll probably behave, right? Mm -hmm. So how does the fear of reaching our potential affect the way that, behave, that we behave, the way that we plan our lives, even the ways that we buy and consume, the ways that we relate to each other? Like, how does this manifest into our everyday? I think it just makes us really fearful. I do think there's this other way besides fear. And so this is Kristen Neff's research, but she researched why we self-criticize. And the number one reason we do is motivation. We think 
self-criticism is the only way to motivate ourselves, but there's really a lot of other ways to motivate without such a cost. So you can, if you criticize somebody or yourself, it will motivate you, but there's so many costs at the end of the day. We can actually encourage people into doing good work. We can actually inspire people into doing good work. And I would love to see that. I see it a little bit like um, I just saw this commercial for LeBron James doing uh, Calm for the Calm app. That's great. An athlete should be paying attention to their mental health. I think Michael Phelps did better help, you know? And Mm -hmm. so just to start saying we don't have to criticize ourselves into success, that there are other ways because we don't act like that in this culture. We kind of say you have to, like no pain, no gain. You have to kind of berate yourself. And I just don't think that's true. Right. So self-criticism is kind of like a script, you know, and scripts kind of become our identities. The burden of potential or even just this potential that you have. I know for me, it's been my identity since I can remember. And I know how destructive that is. Mm -hmm. Do you find that people are often their identities are, are really, really deeply intertwined with whatever their potential is? Or is there a gap? Is there some breathing room that we can create space in where we can start to change that story. Yeah, there's definitely a gap, but I do think for most people, it's my potential is my identity, you know? So whatever I'm going to become, this future self, that becomes what everything's about. But I do think so, I think when you start to, so the way I've reframed it is not that I have to become this particular thing and get attached to a really, again, fixed idea of what the best future for myself is because we're terrible predictors of what will make us happy. So I think when you think of potential as an unfolding, and if I do, so this is actually comes from recovery community like AA, but they always say next right step. So that's where I'm always going with people. So they go, oh, well, I do want to go and get my MBA and I want to change careers and I want to do this, but like 50 years, you know, and they get way too overwhelmed by the enormity of it all. And I go, what's the next right step for you if you want to move in that direction? And I trust there's an unfolding that may look different than your idea of it. And for me personally, I'm like, I have an idea of kind of where I want to go. But like, right, for instance, just how this came about, this whole talk, this was just because we got introduced in a way that I couldn't have predicted. So when we think of potential as something we don't have to control, but that unfolds naturally when we take the next right step, that to me is so much more freeing than I have to create this reality in which I'm a superstar. You know, when you say that, it makes perfect sense and it takes a lot of that pressure off. And I feel like, you know, people are waiting for that kind of permission. Something else you talked about reminded me of a study that I read about how, um, you know, we love to shop because it's actually a very imaginative act, Mm. especially when we're shopping for clothes, because you're imagining your future self. Yes. I mean, and a lot of us even buy clothes that like, you know, Maybe don't we don't we don't have an immediate use case for them right now. Like we're not going on vacation, so we're not going to wear this bikini or, you know, we don't fit into these jeans right now. But, you know, you imagine how you're going to feel in that future state and you imagine what people will think of you and how you will be perceived in that future state as well. Yes. It, It also sounds like, you know, this example and what you're talking about, too, with the burden is that like. It also prevents us from being present in the moment, right? It's always pushing our mindset to the future. Exactly. That's that's what it is. It's all future focused and like you'll be happy in the future and you have to suffer this now so it'll be better in the future. And how many people have gotten to that thing? Maybe you did get the NFL contract and you're depressed, you know? And so 
then you don't get the promise either. You know what I mean? And I think it's terrible what we do to kids in high school. You know, like you need to, what I hear from my adolescent clients is like, you know, the school counselor come in, you need to know what you're doing. You know, you guys are sophomores, like get on it, you know? And the truth is like, you don't, you just don't know. And so why are we forcing people? Like you can't, someone's going to give you an answer because they feel pressure to, but it's not really how things work. And so we're always focused on this future that's going to be better versus what's working for you right now. That's where I think the best data is. Yeah. And I think not to push this too far, but that's what we're seeing with, you know, the brands that we talk about Mm -hmm. on this podcast, you know, a lot of brands that are trying to bring us back to the present because it's almost like this recoiling against whatever you might want to call aspirational or or this future sense of like who you can become. There's this new narrative that's kind of the brands are employing that forces us to come back to today and just be very engrossed and present in what you're doing now. When we were just speaking with Emmett Shine um, in this conversation, he was talking about how they decided to start in cookware because when you cook, it's really hard to kind of do anything else or think about anything else. When he said that, I felt it because I can do anything. I can even, I mean, I hate to admit this. I can even be feeding my kids and be Mm -hmm. thinking about work or thinking about things I need to do or, you know, resisting the temptation to look at my phone, but not when I'm doing things like cooking. And I think that's that's why I love it because it's so much of an escape. And that just occurred to me. (laughs) I think I've always thought I just like cooking because I'm good (laughs) at it, but that's probably not the truth. Yeah. Okay. So in your research, there was a line that stood out to me and you said, it can be hard to believe there might be more than one way to reach our potential and live a satisfying life. Why is that? Why is it so hard for us to see alternatives? Because, again, we kind of get this message again from very early that you need to get on your path and like hang out on it for 30 years, you know? And so it's like, if you miss this boat, that's what, that's what they're saying to the high school kids. If you miss this boat and don't get in the right college, well, that's a real problem. And it's not true. Like how many people didn't get into the college they want or didn't even go to college and they're fine, you know? And so it's again, a fear-based kind of thought. It's not accurate. And so I think this idea that there is mystery in the world and we can't, nobody gets an insurance policy. Like nobody gets, we are all going to have joy and excitement and thrills and we're going to have failures and sickness and decay. And that is part of the whole human experience. Like nobody gets to avoid that. And so instead of setting it up that there's this one way to happiness, get on that treadmill or you know, homelessness, you know, bye, you know, and everyone successful is just waving bye in your loser, you know, canoe. And so it just doesn't happen. You know, it's, it's not true. And so there are, a, if you look at anyone's story that is successful, there will be many detours. Nobody has a straight line. Yeah. That's probably one of the greatest lies we tell ourselves generationally. I, I mean, I can't speak to other generations as a very, very late stage millennial. Yeah. I feel like, okay, we under, it's easy to understand and internalize. Yeah, we have this burden of potential. We're all feeling burnout because there's a huge disconnect between who we think we should be and who we are, which by the way, is the same definition of shame, who we who we think we should be or who what the world expects of us versus who we actually are, exactly. which is interesting. There's a lot of shame tied up in this. But it's hard to accept like that if you know you are capable of great things, that it, that can be more than one thing 
And you can be happy by just choosing one of those at the expense of another. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, and that's why I do believe all paths kind of come together. I love this quote. We often reach our destination on the road we took to avoid it. And so I think that even if you get on a path that you think you're avoiding, or if you get on a path that you're like, well, right, I'm going to community college, my life is over, we will reach where we need to get to if we can stay on the path, which is very painful when we don't know. And so the detour some people take sometimes is into addiction or substances or, you know, just kind of like things that really do take you so off off the path, it's hard to get to your destination. Mm -hmm. But again, those things, I know so many people who are in recovery that that was the best thing that could have happened to them. And that's, they've learned skills for life that get them to where they are now. But what I see of people who really do realize their potential, they have a lot of supports. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've seen that (laughs) Netflix documentary called Losers. Exactly. That's in my article because I, oh, I love was that. it? That's yes. probably how I'm remembering it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll link to that in the yeah. show notes, too, because that is an incredible series about um, people who um, were at the height of their careers and then they lost somehow. And it's just unapologetically honest stories of people who really they talk about the disappointment and they talk about the loss. But then you start to see that that's not the end of the story for a lot of these people. Yeah. The other thing that I'm hearing when, when you're talking about the burden of potential is that there's this undercurrent of uncertainty. And we're living in a world that is so incredibly uncertain already as it is. It feels like a lot to ask us to also embrace uncertainty in the tiny things that we can control or that we feel like we can control in our life path. Like, what role does uncertainty play here? Because it feels, it feels like a lot of this is about giving up control. It, it, it really is. You don't have to embrace uncertainty, but we do have to accept it as a fact of life. And we spend a lot of time trying to deny just universal realities. And like I said, we're giving people the illusion that you can go through life without uncertainty. Like if you want to become a doctor, you know what? Uncertainty has gone. No, I speak to people who are in medical school or I, I have a lot of doctors in my family. It does not get rid of uncertainty. So again, this is one of the lies we tell ourselves. So you don't have to embrace it. Maybe it's more pleasant if you do, but we do have to accept it as a reality that even when, if you pick a really steady course, that we will get detoured. And so if we can say, so I really like something um, a mentor told me, which is we're limited by the feelings we're willing to experience. And so if we are not willing to experience uncertainty, we will have a limited life because we will only choose safe things that we think we know, which again, even if you choose the safest thing, you can get blindsided. But um, we, we limit our experience by saying, I'm only, you know what, I'm not going to even take that risk because I can't tolerate. There is that moment when you like, let's say you send out a job application and you have to wait for the response that is like unbearable, right? That we're just like, well, that was unpleasant. So I'm going to avoid that at all costs. But if we can actually tolerate that experience and in a way like accept it and not try and make it different than what it is, we can have a more expansive experience. Um, So if you're unwilling to feel disappointment or loss, you will live a limited life and it will provide less opportunities for joy. So a lot of this is just an exercise in being willing to feel the full spectrum of emotions and accepting them for what they are. Yes, exactly. We're part of that like 
20th century hustle culture, work by any stretch means, whatever. And I didn't like how I think it it had designed my life. I didn't find, I didn't have balance. I didn't have as good of a relationship with my parents who, as I got older, I was more able to understand what they had gone through. I think it was hard for me to be present in relationships. And I think a lot of like, when I turned 30, I just, I didn't want to be like that as much. And I think that is probably one of the personal inspirations for Pattern was trying to make a culture of business and and all that that I'd grown up in that was more supportive of just reframing goals and balance. And it's not all about money and making money. Um, I understand maybe it sounds easier if you can have a little bit of money, but I do think like that's our goal in America, but it doesn't make you more fulfilled. <laughs>